Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of DEI After Five. So as we continue to have these conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion and what that looks like in the workplace and in our communities, we really have to step back and really think about what is community, right? What does it look like to lean into our community, be it other practitioners, be it the folks that we work with or live with every day? Um, who is that, right? So we're trying to really think about what is community and overlay that with what does diversity, equity, and inclusion look like within those communities, um, especially the equity part. And so today, my guest is Dr. Haley Haywood um, from Elevating Access, who will be talking to me and talking to us actually about community, the importance of community, equity, and how it all ties together. So Dr. Haley, welcome. Thank you, Sasha. It's great to be here. Great for you to be with us. So for those who may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure, absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Haley Haywood. I use she, her pronouns, and I am an equity solutionist and identity conscious coach with over 14 years of experience in higher education, working in various functional areas from leadership initiatives to the provost team, um, working with faculty and student affairs. And I have leveraged um, my professional success designing equity-minded strategies and programs, as well as my dissertation research, looking at um, how first-generation college graduates of color use community cultural wealth to navigate structural barriers to launch and found um, Elevating Access, where I help educators and employers design intentional pathways that are equitable um, towards soul-filling work for racially diverse and first-generation professionals. Oh my gosh, there's just so much <laughs> in that to unpack. You know, but what really stood out to me is you said the phrase community cultural wealth. What is that? Yeah, so community cultural wealth was actually created by Tara Yoso in 2005, and her article has been cited over 10,000 times. Um, so she is a true one. Um, and community cultural wealth is grounded in critical race theory. And it's, it's sort of a call to action to complicate and expand the way that we think about capital in our society. Because mm. oftentimes when we think about capital, we're thinking about, you know, from a capitalistic perspective, right? So thinking about financial capital, um, social capital, which is often valued based on relationships that can then gain us wealth and financial capital and access to power, mm -hmm. um, as well as cultural capital. And so Yoso says we need to expand the ways that we think about wealth and capital to value and accentuate and celebrate the various gifts and attributes that communities of color can also bring into our education and workplaces. I love that. Can you give us some examples of like what that would look like? Because I have in my mind kind of what I think that could be, but I want to make sure that I'm I'm really aligned with what you're saying. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So community cultural wealth has, I believe, six different types of capital. So the first is aspirational capital and how often in communities of color, we are needing to see beyond what is and envision what could be because sometimes there's not a clear model or um, path laid out for us for what those aspirations could look like. Um, there is linguistic capital. So oftentimes um, folks, particularly um, who are descendants of immigrants are growing up speaking multiple languages, right? That is a form of capital that mm -hmm. oftentimes is um, devalued and then sometimes penalized, right? Um, when we think about school and work environments, there are studies that show that for instance, Latin A professionals have gotten penalized for speaking Spanish at work, when in reality, that's actually a gift that they're exactly. bringing to the workplace that helps us expand the communities we can outreach to. Um, so those are a couple examples, resistant capital. So how mm. we raise our, for instance, Black daughters to be authentic, to show up who they are in their power, to embrace their true self and their true voice. Um, navigational capital, so being able to navigate spaces that were not designed with us in mind, and then familial capital. Oftentimes our families, especially if our families have not gone to college or worked in corporate spaces, are devalued. Um, but, you know, a Black father talking to his Black son about how to survive an encounter with the police, that is capital, right? That is saving potentially yeah. life. Um, maybe that father didn't give his son an internship, right? But that is still a really key form of capital that often gets dismissed and devalued by predominantly um, dominant lenses and dominant narratives. You know, I so appreciate this, this framing because when you think of communities of color, as you said, so much of this capital is downplayed, right? Absolutely. Rather than seen as an asset. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a client that I was working with when you, when you spe specifically spoke about linguistic capital and how they were missing out on customers because no one on the team was bilingual. Right. And so in the community, they felt, well, this isn't a place for us because we can't even communicate to get this service. So <clears throat> the value in having staff members that are bilingual, that understand the cultural nuances, that understand them, you know, that can play the music and appreciate that culture, how that can then impact, you know, the capitalistic, you know, bottom line. But um, it's so much in how we frame the value of these things, um, particularly when you are looking at organizations that are very set in supremacist mindsets, 100%. right? 100%. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you use the word assets, right? We need to use an asset-based framework and not a deficit-based mm. framework. And what community cultural wealth teaches us is that it's not that communities of color don't have capital. It's that the capitals that we bring, the knowledges that we bring, the ancestral understandings that we bring that gets passed down from generation to generation, these are systemically undervalued and erased by these dominant narratives of what capital should and could look like. Mm -hmm. You know, that just made me kind of think about also the flip side of that when those nuances of culture are then exploited in negative and harmful ways, right? So I'm thinking 
of just, you know, cultural appropriation is the, the term that is immediately coming to mind when organizations see, ooh, okay, there's an opportunity here. Let's appropriate, <laughs> right? The very things that we dismissed over here, but let's do it ourselves and see what we can gain from it. And so what is the impact of that? One, holistically, but two, to that community? It's absolutely exploitative. It's extractive. Um, you know, the, this example came up in some of the interviews I did as part of my dissertation mm -hmm. research. And um, one person in particular um, who identified as a Black man um, grew up in significantly impoverished circumstances um, and went to a predominantly white, like elite institution. And then his first job after graduation was working for a predominantly white nonprofit, quote unquote, social justice organization, um, where he was the only black man. And they were looking for someone to go into the black and brown communities that they were, according to him, um, afraid to go into and speak with the constituents who were the target audience of this nonprofit, right? And so his body, <laughs> his black man identified body was being exploited and sent into places that otherwise folks deemed unsafe, right? So there mm. is absolutely like a danger and a vulnerability to like that body being positioned, <laughs> right, right? As a prop um, and as a, a source of um, translation to these communities that they're supposed to be serving, but aren't even comfortable going to talk to, right? So yeah. there's, there's a lot of problems there. And um, he talked about how, um, you know, he would come back with feedback saying, you know, this rap sheet, the things I'm supposed to say, it's not really landing well. Here are some ways that, you know, I think we should change that, right? That's his linguistic capital because right. he understands the community and how to connect. And he was constantly dismissed. And, you know, the more he started to push back, he said the more toxic that environment became. So I think it's a really great example of how, you know, in, in, um, in theory, <laughs> he brought value to the organization, but they were missing out and erasing and, and mm -hmm. doing a lot of harm to him and to the community that they serve because they weren't valuing the capital that he brought. They weren't valuing him as holistic. They were valuing him as a prop. There's just so much that's problematic <laughs> with, with that whole situation, right? So like, how are you going to serve a community that you're afraid of? Like, let's let's start there. Um, but then absolutely what you said was he's bringing this linguistic and cultural capital that is that could have been so valuable to them, particularly as a nonprofit serving this community. Um, but they had other things in mind. Like, you know, I, I really under, want to understand, like, what was their true north? Like, what were they really trying to determine or trying to accomplish? But anyway, that's going down a rabbit hole, you know, so. As I continue to think about this and as you're talking about it, the other thing that you you mentioned um, was aspirational. And, you know, we we see often this, um, the idea of representation matters, right? We know representation matters. If you can see it, you can be it. Where we hear this, yet we're then juxtaposed with we're in 2023 and or yes, 2023, my years, I'm telling you, it's all blending together now. Um, and we're still having first. Right. Right. And so when, when I hear aspirational capital, when I 
hear that and then know we've come so far, but there's still so far to go. How in a community do you nurture that? Yeah. And part of that is, is redesigning systems. And that's really what I'm passionate about. Um, so it's interesting because in particular in these interviews, um, I asked folks to start from the time they seriously started thinking about careers and walk me through that journey to, you know, when they finished their first full-time position after graduating from college. And, you know, I was surprised because a lot of people started that journey in elementary school. Um, so a lot sooner than I would have thought of, but you know these these formative experiences that we have really do shape our trajectories um, and, and in many ways our careers and the rest of our lives. So we have to really think about the system holistically and not just you know do a few work resume workshops or you know a mm. mentorship program for you know intro associates full time professionals right like that's not going to fix it. We have to really think about cultivating a system where folks um, are valued, where they can show up as their full selves or as much of themselves as they want to bring to the table. Mm -hmm. um, to your point, a space that's representative, where there's like culturally resonant curriculum and where people are given the literacies to know what pathways are available to them. So, you know, I only got into higher education because I participated in a pre-orientation program and I saw firsthand how powerful equity work could be. And that was a career path that previously I had no idea even existed. So we have to um, mm -hmm. nurture that by providing people with the experiences to see what's possible. Yeah. And, you know, very similarly, I got into DEI work. Um, well, I was a sociology major, but also because I worked in the Office of Multicultural Affairs on campus. Right. right. Which led me to go into student affairs and, you know, down down that path. And so it really is about not just exposure, but opportunity to participate and learn and grow in that that process where you see, oh, I can do this. Like this isn't some pie in the sky. Again, it's aspirational, but you see yourself there. You see yourself reflected in it. And so I appreciate that. And so you talked about like redesigning systems and we often here, you know, especially when we're doing diversity and inclusion work, um, in or regardless of the organization, I'm like, sometimes you just need to burn it down and build it back up, right? Like we need to have this Phoenix mindset. Right. Um, and so when you talk about redesigning systems, can you give us a little bit more about like, what does that look like when you're coming from this framework? Sure. Yeah. So um, what I developed is called the six P's of equity progress. Um, and I think we have to really be intentional about having a multi-layered analysis of what's really at play. So looking at ideologies. So the first P is perspectives. Whose perspectives are we centering in our organizations? Whose perspectives get constantly erased or dismissed? Um, whose perspectives are we thinking about when we're designing solutions, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some like empathy mapping and understanding of communities that we're hoping to serve that needs to happen there. And that should really be the basis of any type of design that we're doing, right? So understanding the perspectives of the people we're trying to serve. Mm -hmm. um, the next P would be looking at policies, right? Mm -hmm. So policies are often created because we're looking for uniformity, right? And a sense of control and stability, but those are the antitheses of equity, yeah. right? So one size does not fit all. So I know, um, you know, I've, I heard a story of someone who 
was um, hired for a new job and got pregnant within a few months of, of starting the job and was told that she was not eligible for paid maternity leave because she hadn't worked there long enough. Right. That is not a way to start off <laughs> a relationship with a all-star employee that you supposedly were just excited about hiring. Yeah. And this person was coming from a background where she was not only supporting herself, but sending money home to her parents and to her siblings. Right. She could not afford to go on unpaid maternity leave, never mm -hmm. mind about the cost of, you know, having a child and all that's entailed. <laughs> um, right. So, right. That policy. I don't really understand what the purpose of that. I mean, obviously, it's centering the business needs over the people. Um, but that's that's a policy that needs to be redesigned from an equity standpoint. Um, then we think about the practices. What do people do to accomplish mm -hmm. their jobs? How are meetings organized? Um, when and how do we communicate about uh, opportunities, stretch projects, right? Um, then thinking about the people involved. Who gets hired and how? Um, what are the values and how can potentially community cultural wealth serve as a framework when we even think about our hiring and onboarding processes, right? Yeah. Like, what if that's how we assess candidates? Um, rethinking processes like referrals, which systemically advantage predominantly white communities, because if your organization is comprised of mostly yeah. white leaders, then their networks are also comprised of multiple Absolutely. leaders. So how do we create relationships with community-based organizations for referrals or tapping into talent pipelines. Um, and then, of course, programs do have value. I think we have an overemphasis and we, we rely too much on programs to be a solution without looking at the larger cultural structures that need to shift. But, um, you know, there is real value in programs like the ones that you and I talked about being part mm -hmm. of cultural spaces, affinity spaces, um, access programs, mentorship programs can have a lot of value if they are also accompanied by these other P's, right? Yeah. That support the infrastructure, um, centering equity. And then lastly, I would say um, we need to take a critical look at progress. So that's yeah. the last P. Uh, we oftentimes assume that activity equals impact and as you and I both know, <laughs> you could be doing a lot of stuff in an organization and you might think that you're centering equity, but really you're centering whiteness, right? Yeah. And oftentimes that's doing a lot of harm. So who gets to determine what progress looks like? How do we assess it? What are our yeah. metrics? And equity needs to be a part and embedded in all of those practices as well. I, I love you know, that you said the progress being that last piece and what are we actually measuring, right? And, you know, in a, another life <laughs> that I have, um, that's something that we're really looking at. It's again, it's not the number of programs that we have, but like, what is the actual problem that we're trying to solve and how are we solving that problem? Right. Which is a very different way to look at it. It's great that you had 400 people come to your event, but what was the problem that they actually came to solve? And and so now you're looking at not just short term, but long term impact on on what you're doing. So I, I truly appreciate that. And then what you said about the programs, you know, I often say to organizations when I'm working in organizations, it's it's great that you have this women's leadership development program over here. But if it's not tied to your succession planning, what's the point? Right. Because now you're just building leaders that are going to go somewhere else. Actually, right. You've given them all the skills and resources and you haven't fit them into how that 
ties to where your organization is going and them seeing themselves as a part of the future of that organization, right? So now it's it's a different um, way of looking at it. So I appreciate those. Um, and again, people, I'm always going to talk about the people, the practices. I mean, all of this, this is absolutely amazing. And even when you talked about perspectives, the question that came to my mind was who's not at the table, whose voice isn't being heard. And if they're not at the table, how do we get them there? Or how do we at least get their perspective, right? Right. Heard, right? So that's where allyship comes in. That's where, you know, you're, you're speaking on behalf of others outside of yourself. Um, again, it goes back to the community and making sure that that's all, all tied in. So if an organization is looking to do kind of these six P's, right? Because to me, it almost seems like it's cyclical. Like you can't just do one. Yeah, like, like you have to do all of them kind of together. So where, where do most organizations fall short? I'll ask you that question. Um, all of them? <laughs> all of them. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, we really rely on um, programs and policies. Mm. And, and even in our reliance on policies, again, it's very much this like one size fits all approach as opposed to what do people need? And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, you know, I know a lot of organizations are interested in the bottom line. It's also not a great use of resources, right? Because if you're giving me something I don't need, it's not being leveraged in the way you intended. And in some cases, it may be wasted. So why not have a better understanding of what are some of the different benefits, wellness needs, um, work-life schedules that folks need and design accordingly, right? I think we're kind of mm-hmm. afraid. We, we oftentimes call equity um, what we really mean is equality. Um, yeah. And so we're like, oh, well, it's not equitable to let this person do this thing that they really need, even though no one else wants it, <laughs> right? right. Um, so I think we just have to be open to new possibilities and to understand that, again, one of these P's in isolation is not really going to move the needle. We have to really look yeah. at our organizational cultures holistically and be willing to look at it from multiple levels, right? So what's beneath the surface when you think about that cultural iceberg, mm-hmm. as well as what's easy to see and easy to shift. I love that. I love it. You know, and it makes me really think about this is so critical at this time because, you know, research is showing us that this post-pandemic workplace, and I'm just, you know, saying workplace kind of in general, um, people, are, their needs are very different than before, right? They reprioritize things in their lives. Um, you know, we've lost a lot of people. And so now health wellness has gone up much higher than it's been in the past. And so when you're looking at these equitable systems and creating these um, systems and programs and all of that in a more equitable way, you're dealing with people that are very different. And so rather than assuming, which most organizations have done, or to your point, made it very general, right? We try to capture as many people in this bucket with this policy versus what do people need and how can we be flexible to that so that they're happy, you know, they get what they need. And then in turn, we'll get what we need, which will then impact the bottom line. 
Right. So, you know, it's just a, a very, um, it's a shifted way of approaching equity work. And, and I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, even though it may be daunting, I think for organizations, like the heavy lift is necessary in order for this to be so much easier down the line. Right. No. Because you know what else is daunting? Turnover. That's, and that's what I'm thinking, <laughs> right? It's like a in your wheels <laughs> and waste all this time. I mean, we also right. don't think about like human resources is also money, right? So like the time that you spend training this employee, the time that they spend starting an initiative that then goes nowhere because they leave, right? Yeah. This is all like we're wasting actually billions of dollars a year collectively yeah. because we're not investing in equity as a, a business imperative and as the core function of how we operate. I love it. Yeah. I, I had a conversation with a client yesterday and he was like, you know, we're in the business of making money. And then a couple of minutes later, it was like, yeah, but people have kind of lost their way. You know, people have just kind of don't care anymore the last couple of years. And I was just like, so maybe have you all, you know, decided what your North Star is when it comes to this and their people and so that everyone can be aligned to that and they see where they fit in and, you know, you're, you're going to make the money. But is there this common? And so when you talk about it, like community, does is there a sense of community that we're all going in the right, in the same direction? Um, you know, it was it was like a light bulb moment where it's like, oh, yeah, no, you mentioned we've focused on the money. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you mentioned like we're losing people. I think the question we have to ask is what are we losing them to? Right. Why right. is it that black women are more than anyone else leaving the workforce and starting their own businesses? Yep. You know, a lot of people that I talk to, they say like they escaped to entrepreneurship. I mean, that mm -hmm. is powerful language. Like I'm escaping this like nine to five hold um, and, and looking for freedom. Right. Looking for an opportunity yeah. to work in a space where you're not constantly microaggressed to be able to set your own rates for how much you make, right? To be able to handle and, and address your lived experience needs, right? To not have mm -hmm. to um, say, well, I can't take 10 minutes to go, you know, get lunch because I have to do be glued to my computer. Right. I got to clock out. And yeah. It's the flexibility, you know, and it, I, that's exactly what it is. It's um, choosing you. Yes. And it's like, okay, well, what do I need? These are the things that I need. So where can I get that? And oftentimes it's when we build our own tables. So, yeah. So Dr. Haley, do a little way. bit of a pivot. <laughs> Say that again. I was just saying, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, employers, you would assume, want to keep the most talented people in the workforce. And we are the most talented people. So you need to figure out how to keep us. <laughs> Yeah, you know, most educated. Yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> episode. <laughs> so I'm gonna do a little bit of a pivot. Sure. Um, I often, you know, talk to folks about wellness and self care, and you know, what do you do to take care of yourself? So I'm gonna throw that question at you, right? How do you fill your cup? Love it. 
Um, so my partner and I start every day with a 10 minute yoga stretch in the morning. Um, it's something we can do together. I know that I need to have more movement in my body and I often get bored when I exercise. So, you know, meeting myself where I'm at 10 minutes is a great <laughs> you know, way to at least get some movement going and start the day. Um, so that makes a really big difference in just like my relaxation and um, clarity to start the day with. I also um, believe firmly in having boundaries. Um, so mm -hmm. when I'm not at work, I do not work. And being really clear about the things that I need to feel supported in my workspace. And then lastly, I would say investing in a good mattress makes a really big difference. <laughs> yes. Yes. A million times. Yes. It's yes. a game changer. It really it, is. It truly <laughs> is. And, you know, I'm well, yes. Because <laughs> I'm just going to say I had horrible sleep for a long time. And when we moved, ended up getting a totally different bed. And I'm like, this is this is what sleep is supposed to be like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to wake up feeling like you just had a, a big fight. Um, so I, I truly appreciate that. And then the morning um, med yoga, stretching, meditation, a lot of my guests talk about that. I'm not a morning person, but I'm not either, but it helps me <laughs> ease into the day. I also don't leave my bed until I know I'm not grumpy. So that also helps preserve Ooh. my relationship. So. <laughs> That's a good one. That's it, a good it, one. it works wonders. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Dr. Haley, if people wanted to connect with you, follow up with you, where could they find you? Yes, please connect away. Um, I am on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. You can also feel free to email me at Haley at elevating-access.com. And I look forward to connecting with you. Yay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, I took like a ton of notes because it truly is understanding what that, that cultural wealth is. And once you can kind of get that framework in mind and really understand and learn how to tap into it, I think that can unleash so much in who we are and, and how we show up. So thank you so much for sharing this information. And everyone, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of DEI After Five. As always, you can find us here every Tuesday at 5.15 p.m. Eastern. Please be sure to subscribe and like and comment, all of those things here on YouTube or where you listen to your podcast. Until next time, have a good one.